Okay, he's going to read from the big print Bible. And uh, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 10, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning at verse 10. And we'll complete this reading at the end of chapter 23. So it looks like it on these red ones, it's on three, two, two. When Athaliah, the mother of Azariah, son, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joas, son of Azariah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Because Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and the wife of the priest Jehoadiah, was Azariah's sister. She hid the child from Athaliah, so she could not kill him. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years, with Athaliah ruled the land. In the seventh year, Jehadiah showed his strength. He made a covenant with the commanders of the units of a hundred. Azariah, son of Joram, Ishmael, son of Johanan, Azariah, son of Obed, Messiah, son of Adad, and Elsaphat, son of Zikri, they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites and the heads of Israelite families. From all the towns. When they came to Jerusalem, the whole assembly made a covenant with the king at the temple of God. Johanna said to them, The king's son shall reign, as the Lord promised, concerning the descendants of David. Now this is what you are to do. A third of you priests and Levites, who are going on duty on the Sabbath, are to keep watch at the doors. A third of you at the royal palace and a third at the foundation gate. And all other men are to be in the courtyards of the temple of the Lord. No one is to enter the temple of the Lord except the priests and the Levites on duty. They may enter because they are consecrated. But all other men are to guard what the Lord has assigned to them. The Levites are to station themselves around the king, each man with his weapons in his hand. Anyone who enters the temple must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. The Levites and all the men of Judah did just as Joadah, the priest, ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty. For Joadah, the priest, had not released any of the, the divisions. Then he gave the commanders of units of a hundred the spears and the large and small shields that had belonged to King David, and they were in the temple of God. He stationed all the men, each with his weapon in his hand, around the king, near the altar and the temple, from the south side to the north side of the temple. Johanna and his sons brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. They presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and shouted, Long live the king. 
When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and cheering the king, she went to the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king, standing by his pillar at the entrance. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and singers with musical instruments were leading the praises. Then Athaliah tore her robes and shouted, Treason! Treason! Johada the priest sent out the commanders of units of a hundred, who were in charge of the troops, and said to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, Do not put her to death at the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the entrance of the horse gate on the palace grounds, and they put her to death. Joada then made a covenant that he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people. All the people went down to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and the idols and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Johada placed the oversight of the temple of the Lord in the hands of the priests, who were the Levites, to whom David had made assignment in the temple to present the burnt offerings of the Lord as written in the law of Moses. With rejoicing and singing as David had ordered, he also stationed doorkeepers at the gates of the Lord's temple so that no one may, who was in any way unclean might enter. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the nobles, the rulers of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the temple of the Lord. They went into the palace, through the upper gate, and seated the king on the royal throne. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. Uh, Father, thank you for this word from 2 Chronicles. And we do pray that you would silence our minds, uh, our hearts, uh, help us to focus on uh, this word. Uh, that by your spirit that we would be changed in our thinking and encouraged in our hearts and uh, changed in the way that we live. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. After all this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great pain. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David but not in the tomb of kings. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 18 to 20. What dreadful verses of Scripture. <laughs> I mean, you know, not exactly the kind of verses that you're likely to find on, you know, one of those Christian posters that you might pick up at Kurong. Uh, interesting verses, perhaps if you're a doctor or a nurse or a med student amongst us, but hardly the verses that you would meditate upon during your family devotions, especially after dinner. It's an awful picture. It's dreadful. 
And not just because it's so gross, uh, but also because the man who was so dreadfully afflicted was a king of Judah, a descendant of David, whose royal line was to be a blessing to God's people. But did you notice how God's people reacted when this particular king died? It says that he died to no one's regret. Nobody wept. Nobody was sad. Nobody was disappointed to get the news about his death. What does that tell you about him? Now, imagine if this King Jehoram uh, was given a tombstone and someone thought, you know what, we really should inscribe a verse of scripture on his tombstone. And they chose that verse. He died to no one's regret. That's not what I'd want on my tombstone, would you? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, that's, that would be very sad. And it's doubly sad because it speaks volumes of what life was like for uh, the people of Judah under his rule. Uh, for God's people, this period of uh, the rule of Jehoram was a very dark age, a time which, which would have actually challenged their confidence in God uh, because of the way that he ruled and of what life was like for them. Sometimes as Christians we can feel that our confidence in God is a bit challenged. Um, we live in a world which, uh, which approves of sin. Uh, we live in a world uh, where the rejection of Christian truths and rejection of that which we hold to be dear can make us feel like we're living in kind of like a bit of a dark age. And although we know that God is in control, sometimes we can react as if we don't really know that God is in control. But what about Judah? How did things become so bleak uh, during the time of King Jehoram. Now, I guess, and you might want to have your Bibles opened up at uh, 2 Chronicles ch chapter 21, but um, my guess is that uh, if you were a king at that time in history, then uh, how would you feel if you um, received in the, in the letterbox a letter written to you from Elijah the prophet. How would you feel about that? Would you be in a rush to open that kind of a letter? Elijah lived in, uh, in the northern kingdom, but uh, in chapter 21, verse 12, he chose to write a letter to Jehoram, the king in the southern kingdom, the king of Judah. And uh, well, let's have a look at what he wrote in chapter 21, verse 12. Uh, where it says, Jehoram received a letter from Elijah the prophet, which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of Asa, king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves just as the house of Ahab did 
You have also murdered your own brothers, members of your father's house, men who were better than you. So now, the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering lingering disease of the bowels until the disease causes your bowels to come out. I bet he wish he hadn't opened up that letter. It's dreadful, isn't it? Now, uh, Jehoram's father was Jehoshaphat. Now, you, you remember Jehoshaphat from, from last week? Um, uh, he was assessment of... It was a mixed assessment of Jehoshaphat, wasn't it? He, but on balance, he was a godly king. However, his, his main fault was that he was too accommodating and that he had allied himself uh, with Ahab, the king of the north. Allied himself in a military alliance, but he had allied himself uh, through a marriage situation as well. Joined the two families together with the ungodly king of Israel. He sowed a seed. And now, in verse 6 of chapter 21, we learn more about what that marriage alliance was, and it is that his son is married to a daughter of Ahab. A political decision which has profound spiritual consequences because who is now really in control? Elijah says in verse 13 that Jehoram has followed the ways of the kings of Israel. How do you think that happened? It is through the marriage to Ahab's daughter. Now, notice how Elijah describes this ungodliness. Again, in verse 13... He says that uh, Jehoram has led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves. This is a very colourful passage, isn't it? Um, prostitution. It's, but it's an apt description because what was the hallmark of the reign of Ahab in the northern kingdom? What was a big thing that he introduced into, into Israel? It was the worship of, of Baal, wasn't it? Baal worship, the, the pagan fertility cult where uh, men would worship Baal uh, by having sex with temple prostitutes, uh, which would uh, supposedly cause fertility to be happening uh, in the heavenlies, which would have its effect in terms of the crops growing and the livestock reproducing uh, in their agriculture. It was false, it was immoral. And the men loved it. Very popular. But this was not just physical prostitution. This was spiritual prostitution. For when we set our hearts on worshipping a false god, uh, the true god, the Lord, is actually pushed away. It's like an adultery against him. Baal worship had replaced the worship of God. And when ungodliness rules in any society, there is a tendency towards tyranny in its various forms. Jehoram 
had ushered in a very dark age in the history of God's people. A dark age which was not ended uh, with his death uh, because of his bowel problems. Because who was it who was really ruling? Now, come with me to chapter 22 and have a look at verses 1 and 2. The people of Jerusalem made, this is after Jehoram's death, the people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place. Since the raiders who came with the, uh, with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the older sons. So that's another story. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri. Now, notice how his mother is described. His mother, of course, is Jehoram's wife. But she's not uh, described just as Jehoram's wife. She's described as the granddaughter of Omri. She was the father, her father was Ahab. Her grandfather was Omri. Now, this detail is, is very deliberate. Because Omri, uh, as the father of Ahab, was the one who had arranged uh, for Ahab to marry the pagan Baal-worshipping uh, princess Jezebel. That is, that is where the rot started, back with Omri. He has a lot to answer for because it was that decision which opened the door to Baal worshipping in the northern kingdom of Israel and now uh, through Athaliah into Judah. One decision to disobey God which led to generational and national apostasy. Uh, we have to be very careful with the decisions that we make, don't we? Uh, we can sometimes disobey God for expediency's sake uh, and don't even think about the long-term consequences. We need to trust that God's ways are best and that, uh, believe it or not, he actually knows more than we do. Funny about that. Because who is now ruling Judah? Well, in verse 1... In verse 1, all of Jeho Jehoram's, uh, chapter 22, all of Jehoram's sons have died in battle except this youngest son, Ahaziah, who is crowned king, but who is really in charge? It's his mum. Pick it up at verse 3. Uh, speaking of uh, Ahaziah, he too walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. For his mother encouraged him in doing wrong. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after his father's death, they became his advisers to his undoing. He also followed their counsel when he went with Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Hazaliel, the king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. Now, the northern kingdom 
therefore, is now ruling Judah by stealth through Ahab's daughter. Uh, it is she who encourages Ahaziah to be wicked. And now the house of Ahab, the northern royal family, become his advisors. And he follows their advice, joining them to wage war in Ramoth-Gilead. There's a lot of detail here, isn't there? But where have we heard the name Ramoth-Gilead before? Last week, wasn't it? Last week, when his grandfather uh, disastrously joined forces with Ahab. And, the, and Ahab was killed, his grandfather wasn't killed, but however... This time God brings judgment on both kings as God raised up a man named Jehu who in verses 7 to 9 destroyed the entire royal family of Ahab and then had Ahaziah put to death. But in death they did actually afford Ahaziah some degree of dignity uh, if you have a look at chapter 22, verse 9, the second part of it, where we're told they buried him. They didn't just lie him out in the fields to rot and to be picked at by vultures and wild animals. He, For they said, he was a son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart. And then we're told that there was no one in the house of Azalea powerful enough to retain the kingdom. Now, I want you to imagine that uh, you're an ordinary working-class Jewish person at this time and all of this is going on with the leadership. How would you now feel? Confused? Anxious? Helpless? And you may even wonder, where is God in all of this mess? What is God doing? Yet the bad, things is, the bad news is that things are about to get worse. Back in chapter 21, verse 7, uh, we are told that despite the sin of the kings of Judah, that God would not destroy the house of David. He would not destroy the Davidic line. But Athaliah would. No problems. Uh, she had accrued significant political power and now that her son, King Ahaziah, was dead, she seized the moment to end the Davidic line. Chapter 22, verse 10. When Hathaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. So who is now in control? It's, a, it's Athaliah. Uh, this um, northern princess, this bar-worshipping, this daughter of Ahab is now running the kingdom of Judah. What is God doing? Now, you might recall that the, book of Chronicle, the books of Chronicles are actually written to people who lived a long time after the events that are described 
they were written for Jews who had been uh, released by the Persians from their exile in Babylon. And they'd gone back to, uh, to Judah and they were rebuilding, and the, but they were under the, under the authority of the Persian king and they had no king of their own, no Davidic king. And yet, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, remember that David had said to God that he'd build a house for God and God said, no, 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 I'll build a house for you. I'll build a... and there will be a royal dynasty and that uh, one of your descendants will sit on the throne for, for how long? Forever. This will be an everlasting kingdom with a, with a descendant of David seated, seated on that throne for eternity. And so these returnees from the exile, they might be wondering, well, did God actually fail to deliver on that promise? And it's the same here. It appears that Athalia has extinguished the line of David. And with it, the promise of God and Judah's whole reason for its existence. Now, things are not always as they appear. Um, in our own day, the uh, Christian church has lost much of the uh, respect and the institutional power that it may once have had. Um, but is God's church dying? Is that really what's going on? It may not necessarily make it into the news headlines, but behind the scenes, the gospel is spreading. <laughs> In some places, it's spreading like wildfire. People around the world are hearing about Jesus and are becoming Christians all the time, every day. God's promise has not failed. For why did God not extinguish the house of David? He could have done so. He had every right to do so because of the ungodliness of the kings. In chapter 21, verse 7... We're told the reason why he did not extinguish the house of David was because he had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. That's the way it puts it. A lamp for David and his descendants forever. Now, I don't pretend to understand much at all about how to conduct a successful political coup. I don't need to understand how to do it. It seems that some of the politicians in Canberra struggle how to be successful at that as well. But at the political level, there is a coup that happens here. And, and the coup which is described for us in chapter 22, verse 11 and onwards, to me it sounds brilliant. Because the reality was that not every member of the house of David had been killed. Chapter 22, verse 11. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom because Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of the priest Jehoiada was Ahaziah's sister. 
She hid the child from Athaliah, so she could not kill him. There you go. All of the princes are all been lined up. They're all going to be executed. And no one particularly notices that the youngest one has been taken away. Jehoshabah, a daughter of the previous king Jehoram. What has she done here, folks? She's broken the family mould, hasn't she? <laughs> you know why? Because she's godly. And so is her husband, the priest Jehoiada. And so secretly she has taken her nephew, Prince Joash. Now I think that the key to this is, has been patience, privacy and planning. Um, these three things were essential to what's about to happen. Uh, patience because the young heir to the throne is now hidden away for six years. And then in chapter 23, verse 1, we're told, in the seventh year, Jehoiada showed his strength. That is, he made his move. He'd been patiently waiting to the right for the right time, for the right things to be in place, and now he made his move to place the rightful Davidic king on the throne. How so? How did he do it? Well, First of all, he built strategic alliances with the military, civil and, leadership, uh, and religious leadership of Judah. And it seems that he didn't have a hard time getting their support because uh, apparently Athaliah was not particularly well loved. Chapter 23, verse 1. In the seventh year, Jehoiada showed his strength. He made a covenant with the commanders of units of a hundred uh, Azariah, son of Jehoram, Ishmael, son of Jehoham, Azariah, son of Obed, Messiah, son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, son of Zikri. They went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites and the heads of, of Israelite families uh, from all of the towns. When they came to Jerusalem, the whole assembly made a covenant with the king at the temple of God. And Jehoiada said to them, The king's son shall reign as the Lord promised concerning the descendants of David. Now notice how Joash is referred to. He may not be seated on the throne, but he is actually called the king. There's always been a king in the line of David, no matter what Athaliah thought. Secondly, in verses 4 through to 7, uh, it's not, not just that this was a, um, uh, that, that he built strategic alliances. In verses 4 through to 7, this coup was well executed. Uh, on the day of the coup, the priests and the Levites were positioned in strategic locations around the uh, palace, around the temple, and around an important gate. Armed soldiers were put in place to surround uh, the young king Joash and to surround the temple. And then with the proper alliances and the proper defences in place, they were ready. Chapter 23, verse 11. Jehoiada and his sons brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. They presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him 
and they shouted, Long live the king. See, patience, privacy and planning, and then surprise. The first that Athalia knew about this was when she heard the crowd. She heard all of the raucous noise that was happening on. She heard the sound of music as people, the people of Judah were shouting uh, with joyful hearts in praise of their God. And the only word that Athalia could shout was the word treason, treason. As armed troops commenced their operation to seize her and execute her. It's a nice coup, isn't it? But restoring the Davidic throne was not all that they did. Chapter 23, verse 16. Jehoiada then made a covenant that he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people, Yahweh's people. And all of the people went to the temple of Baal. There was a temple of Baal in Jerusalem. And they tore it down. They smashed the altars and the idols and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. It's one thing to restore the Davidic king, but you've got to follow it through and get rid of the idolatry. Now, it's interesting uh, to note how godly people behaved during this dark period. Prayer is always the most important response. But here we see that they also took action. It was wise, it was well-executed action to place God's king on the throne. They used their brains and their hearts. And yet none of this would have achieved anything but for God. For behind the scenes, God was at work. For God had promised a lamp for David and his descendants. And God is always faithful. As Christians, it's not hard for us to sometimes feel anxious about our world. Uh, not just because of the general state of things, but also because of the widespread acceptance of sin and the sometimes very forthright uh, rejection of Christianity. And uh, we live in a world where Christians are even now ridiculed for holding biblical values, even in some churches. I read in the, uh, in the paper this week about some Christians who have left their denomination because they believe that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. I, I don't want to address that issue. That's something which we've dealt with in the past. It's an example only. Uh, but they've left their church because of that. Uh, you know what the media called them? And I quote, a splinter group of renegade worshippers. How about that, eh? How about that? Again, I don't want to focus on the issue, but the point is that what was considered normal not so long ago, well, if you, if you thought something which people thought long ago, you'd now be, not, not so long ago, you now thought of as being a renegade, um, if you hold to it. And we can feel that on many different fronts, can't we? Um, 
We live in a world where sin reigns, where we can feel that we're a little bit like renegades or outcasts. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because this is exactly what the Bible says that we should expect. This is the Bible's diagnosis of the world. That because of Satan, that Satan rules in the hearts of many as he did once in the hearts of many of us. Maybe in your heart, certainly in mine. But that's in the past, for we know that another coup has taken place. Now, remember uh, the sign that they placed above the cross of Jesus. You remember what it, what it said? The King of the Jews. That was meant to mock Jesus and to mock God's people. But at the spiritual level, there he was. The Son of God, God the Son, dying on a cross. Satan's finest hour, Satan's opportune time, the moment for Satan to reign supreme. All of Satan's plans coming to fruition. And yet, the resurrection changes all of that, doesn't it? In Romans chapter 1, Paul says of Jesus that he was a descendant of David, just like Joash was, that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And just as Athalia screamed out, treason, treason, you'd have to think that Satan was not expecting the resurrection, was he? Never dreamt of that. Didn't think that would happen. That by his death, that Satan's grip of power, that his grip over us, the, the guilt of our sin that accused us and would send us to hell, that that's been dealt with. And that by his resurrection, that Jesus now rules from heaven. That he is king, that he is Lord of all, that he rules from heaven. And as he sends the Holy Spirit, that he rules in the hearts of all who trust him, love him and obey him because they've been forgiven through him. You know, uh, there is so much in our world which is just so wonderful. And as Christians, we mustn't paint too bleak a picture of the world. But in the midst of the world's sin and the world's corruption, we can be confident. For we, pray, we preach Christ crucified and raised again. And we pray... Don't we? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, for your faithfulness to your promise that there would always be a king in the line of David seated on your throne. And uh, amidst the challenges and the trials and difficulties of living in a 
world that's sometimes very bleak and very dark, uh, we know that uh, the resurrection of Christ Jesus uh, is the fruition of all of your promises, that he does rule supreme, that he is king. Father, we pray that we would uh, set our sights on him uh, as we live in this age, looking forward to the next. We pray that uh, you would continue to open up the hearts of many more people, that they too would name Jesus as their king. And Father, we pray that as more and more people come into the kingdom, that indeed it would speed his coming again. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Mm.